Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. If you're a coffee drinker, I have some important information you need to know. You see, coffee is the number one source of antioxidants people are consuming all around the world. It's rich in chlorogenic and caffeic acid, which stabilize blood sugar, support your gut health, and improve your brain. But there is a dark side to coffee. It often carries mold, dangerous mycotoxins, and is heavily sprayed with pesticides that lead to chronic disease. It's also acidic, causing stomach issues, and many have to stop drinking coffee as they get older because it irritates their stomach lining. And that is why I started drinking Life Boost Coffee. I wanted something that had all the health benefits with none of the mold and chemicals found in regular coffee. Plus, it's a shade-grown coffee, which is naturally a low-acid coffee that doesn't hurt my stomach. They have hundreds of testimonials of people who couldn't stomach traditional coffee, who can now enjoy coffee on a daily basis without any digestive discomfort. They also third-party test for 450-plus toxins, including mycotoxins, molds, heavy metals, pesticides, and even glyphosate, just to make sure it's the cleanest healthiest cup they can provide to their customers. I also really like these guys because they build schools for the farmer's children near the coffee farms where they harvest their coffee beans. And they are corporate sponsors of the Rainforest Trust to prevent deforestation and protect wildlife. They really care about the environment. And because you're listening to my podcast right now, you can get 50% off your first order by going to www.lifeboostdeal.com. That's L-I-F-E-B-O-O-S-T-D-E-A-L.com. They serve a variety of organic coffees as well as healthy, low-acid, flavored, and decaf options. This isn't just an ad. I'm a Life Boost customer as well. Life Boost Coffee is low-acid, shade-grown, clean, and free of toxins, and it tastes amazing. Just go to, again, www.lifeboostdeal.com to get 50% off now. If we're going to be healthy in the 21st century, we have got to keep inflammation under control. Inflammation is literally the root cause of all the different degenerative chronic health conditions, things like Alzheimer's, heart disease, Parkinson's disease, cancer, diabetes, these are all characterized by chronic inflammation. And so I went ahead and I interviewed some of the top experts in the world when it comes to inflammation and I actually created a summit. It was called the Chronic Inflammation Summit. We hosted it in May of 2021. You may have listened, you may not have, but I wanted to share some of my favorite interviews on this podcast. And this is one of them. You guys are going to get so much value out of this podcast. And if you know anybody that's struggling with any sort of chronic health conditions, maybe they have pain in their body, digestive issues, autoimmunity, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, brain issues, please share this podcast with them. It could literally change and save their lives. And if you haven't already, take a moment and leave us a five-star review. 
Your reviews help us reach more people and impact more lives. Thanks so much for doing that, and let's go into the show. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Chronic Inflammation Summit. I'm your host, Dr. David Jockers, and today our interview is going to be on the Cancer Inflammation Connection, and I've got a great guest, good friend of mine, Dr. Nasha Winters from drnasha.com. She is the best-selling author of The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. I actually have that book right here. It's something I reference on a regular basis. Really the best book out there. If you're wanting to know information about cancer, how it develops at the cellular level, uh, what we understand about it today, I really can't think of a better book than The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. She did a great job at that. And the, the subtitle of it is Integrating Deep Nutrition, the Ketogenic Diet, and Non-Toxic Bio-Individualized Therapies. We're going to go into that today in, in this interview. And Dr. Nasha has a powerful story in her own journey with cancer. And we're going to get started with that. But Dr. Nasha, welcome to the summit. Thank you. It's so good to be back with you. We were just celebrating your growing family. and That's and- right. Life and the, the the wonders of of you know it's like having large families is just a delight. So that's your anti-inflammatory uh, treatment. <laughs> <laughs> we get a lot. We get a lot of oxytocin, especially with the kids being so young. Lots of cuddling, right? Which is so anti-inflammatory. Absolutely huge. And in this time of the world around us, we're all a little bit oxytocin. Yes. Yes. For those of you guys that don't know, oxytocin is a connection hormone, right? It's in a sense, kind of like a love and connection hormone. And uh, a woman who's pregnant and and giving birth has a ton of oxytocin that actually helps with the birth process. But also when you're snuggling, cuddling, um, you know, with a spouse, significant other or child, you're releasing that oxytocin and it really helps connect us with others. And it's very anti-inflammatory. And just like you said, we really need that. Exactly. Exactly. So yes, it's time. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to start with your story. I mean, you have a really powerful story, powerful testimony that I know will inspire our audience. So let's start with that. Sure. So I kind of came into this world a little day late and a dollar short. Um, From the get-go, there were all kinds of problems with me um, being able to digest any formula. Um, Interestingly enough, in 1971 in Wichita, Kansas, that was apparently not in vogue to breastfeed. So it never quite occurred to the physicians to have my mother actually breastfeed me instead. So they finally settled upon a soy formula. And for me, I believe that's where my journey really started. For what I know now of my epigenetics, what I know now of my own microbiome, of my own medical history, that was probably kind of a little bit of kindling on a little bit of an inflammatory fire that built over time. And so that set the pace that by the time I was in my um, nine, 10 years old, I actually started menstruating and um, maybe TMI for some of your folks listening here, but in 1979, that is not what we, that was not normal then. It's, we see it more often today, still not normal, but we weren't mm-hmm. seeing it then. And again, it didn't occur to anybody to ask those questions. Fast forward, basically by the time I was in high school, I had polycystic ovarian disease, endometriosis. They put me on birth control pills at 11 years old to deal with the pain of my endometriosis. I I pooped once a month and my doctors told my mom that that was just my pattern that was mm-hmm. normal. Wow. So you can just imagine the simmering pot of, mm. of everything unwholesome gathering on top of living in an incredibly uh, toxic, stressful, traumatic Um, abusive environment at that time as well, which also is a huge contributor. We'll talk about in a moment to inflammation and and chronic illness. 
But all of those things were the perfect storm that at 14, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Again, at 16, it was, they were all cryoablated, treated very superficially, no problem. At 19, I was in and out of the ER for months on end. Everyone sort of coined me as the histrionic female, just kept pushing me um, to get on um, benzodiazepine medication, anti-anxiety meds, which I had a horrible reaction to, which now I recognize looking at my epigenetic profile that I have major drug um, metabolism issues. So I can look a lot of things 2020 vision when using that in this year is kind of ironic too, but I can really understand the why of all those patterns. But by the time I was literally dying, sick enough, um, little sticks, arms, little sticks, legs, a giant belly. I looked like I was 10 months pregnant, hmm. um, ended up in the ER. Um, I couldn't catch my breath. I got in there. My pulse ox was in the seventies when they started to do an examination, what was in my belly was massive amounts of um, metastatic uh, malignant fluid, uh, cancer fluid. And when they really finally started doing a proper workup, they found a grapefruit size lesion on my right ovary, METs in my liver, carcinomatosis and peritoneal implants. And for the lay person, that means I had cancer filling my entire abdomen on every possible surface mm. you can imagine. My kidneys were in failure. My liver was in failure. I had fluid in my lungs. I flew it around my heart in the pericardial cardial sac. Um, my, I was incredibly um, having problems with my heart rate and my breathing and my oxygen saturation. And they literally said at that time, if they gave me a single dose of chemotherapy, it would kill me outright. Wow. So they told me- Not much hope. It, not, no hope. In fact, they, yeah. that's what I mean. they sent me on to palliative care. Um, I also, at that time, I had a bowel blockage. And so that kind of segues mm. into a conversation we're going to have in a moment because I was unable to eat for about mm. two and a half months. Yeah. All right. And tiny, tiny sips of water. That is actually probably what saved my life, given that right. I wasn't doing any other therapies at that time. I couldn't, I couldn't take a pill. I couldn't take a, couldn't take a supplement. I couldn't take an herb. I couldn't take a pharmaceutical. So it was literally between, you know, God and myself and a couple sips of, of, fluid broth on occasion, Paldarco tea. Those were the two things I was sipping on in that window of time. So yeah, that exploded into a, hey, you're going to be dead in three months. And if we do stabilize you and you start treatment, hey, you'll be dead in three to six months. So um, when you're given no way, there's a little weird pilot light that came on to me because, you know, in honesty, if people have listened to other interviews I've done, I was at a very dark place in my life. I had really given up hope on so many levels of being. I did not see a better way for myself. I came from a place that did not really give me a lot of great options to look forward to in life. I'd even tried to take my own life on a couple of occasions and nearly succeeded once before. And so in this moment, you'd think, oh, goody, here's my opportunity to check out. Instead, what it did for me, especially when someone said, you can't do this, you will die, there is no hope, there are no options, my stubborn gene got, um, it, you know, the button got pushed on that, and it lit this pilot light into me. And so just so your listeners know, you know, a lot of people say, well, what did you do to survive? I mean, I'm still 29 years out as of October 21st, you know, 2020. Mm. 29 years out of this, I'm still thriving. I'm still figuring it out. I still carry a disease burden in my body, but I'm not cancering. We'll talk about right. that more in a moment. But what it did for me is it created a, de a desire to live, but also sort of an um, equanimity to it, realizing that that was probably unrealistic. So a desire to live, but also a desire to understand why. So I got very curious. I started studying. I was pre-med. I was already in that realm and going to a poor liberal arts school. I had access to a very underdeveloped library that had me stumble upon some old work of this crazy guy named Dr. Otto Warburg. And that 
did something for me. It, it helped me link on to something that made more sense than what I was reading in the literature of what is cancer, which was this genetic disease. That's a two hit theory. That's what the theory was in the mm -hmm. early nineties. And, and it gave me a lot more hope to think that, Hey, if I focus on cleaning up my terrain, maybe just maybe, and I ran across the work of Beauchamp and, mm -hmm. you know, others. I'm like, if I, if I maybe tried that, maybe if I just stabilize things, at least I'll have a quality of life while I'm dying. That was actually my only goal and only hope. Yeah. Here we are nearly three decades <laughs> later, and I've learned a few extra things along the way and helped a few at this point, well, over 10,000 patients. And now I train doctors to help their patients and building a hospital and all these other cool things have come from this um, seemingly horrific event. But in that, I've just been a living uh, laboratory, learning, helping other patients do the same. And that's why we're here today. That's where this book was birthed from and um, all the other pieces. You, you can fill in the rest of the gaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, just a powerful pain to purpose story right there where obviously um, you were near death and you've turned that around. And not only are you living your life, but you're also helping inspire and educate so many others. Now you're educating a lot of physicians out there on what they can do to help their clients as well. So you truly took you know, something that was catastrophic and, you know, the worst news ever, and you turned it into something that's benefiting all of mankind. So just a beautiful story. Um, so let's talk about that. Like you, you, you said you, you could barely eat for, what was it? Two and a half months? Two and a half months. Um, anything yeah. I came back up or caused such excruciating pain, I was afraid to eat. And so I knew if I sipped on very small amounts of warm liquid, mm. uh, that was helpful but yeah. I ice cold liquid. So each time I would drink a sip of ice cold liquid, I would go to these colicky, unbelievable cramping. That actually was a really good thing for one of my homeopathic physicians that I met early on was like, you need, you know, phosphorus. And that was, so just like mm. another side story, it was my desires and my symptoms were actually telling patterns about myself to people who were trained to look at me more as a pattern versus a disease. Right. Yeah. So I got inspired by these other people along the way, but in that two and a half months of giving myself complete digestive rest, something was happening inside of me. All of these other symptoms I'd had my whole life, because I had also at that time, by that time I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, and uh, polycystic uh, endometriosis. It was later to find out that I also had Hashimoto's and celiac disease. So it was just a collection of autoimmune dysfunction. Yeah, your body was just destroying itself. Exactly. And knowing now what I also know, because what this triggered for me in 1991 was to do research on the psychosomatic piece. There was something mm. very intuitive for me in this, even though I had no experience in this arena, but I stumbled upon the work of Candace Pert, right. Rob Hader, Bruce Lipton, mm -hmm. basically what was the burgeoning field of psychoneuroimmunology. That also had extreme resonance in me. I actually changed my major. I had to take the rest of that semester off because I was, you know, first I didn't think I'd be alive for the next semester. Yeah, yeah. I took time off just to rest and literally just deal. And that's where the, the fasting resting piece came in. Context, I was working 60 hours a week. I was taking 27 hours of uh, pre-med science courses. Um, I was paying for all my bills on my own. I was on student loans out the wazoo. I was in full on survival mode, didn't know how to stop. And so it stopped me and it right. pushed me in place and it pushed me into another level of resilience. I'd had to be in a level of personal survival for some time. 
but it really allowed me to shift gears to become more empowered versus victimized by my circumstances. And the readings that I stumbled across, like Deepak Chopra's Quantum Healing, one of the first books I read, like the first book I read right after my diagnosis, which just kept leading me down these other rabbit holes of exploration, along with the metabolic approach and my passion for physiology, anatomy, et cetera. I just kept stumbling across these pieces. So what I understood about myself early on and what was happening in that fasting state is my decade, almost two decades worth of chronic inflammation yeah. I'd been dealing with was suddenly gone or going away. Mm. And that was, I mean, the layer cake effect, like I said, probably started more at birth, you know, from the, the problems with my gut, that, that food that I was putting into my body, those hormones was causing gut inflammation, right. which with my immune system, which then messed with my microbiome, which then messed with my hormones, which, I mean, it just, it goes on and on to the drops of the bucket I allude to in the book. By the time I hit 19 years old, I'd also, my job was from 12 to 18. I worked at hot dog on a stick in, in mm. the mall. And which <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when people see my life and my diet now, they're like, what? And so literally my diet was the most pro standard of American pro-inflammatory diet you could possibly have, which was boatloads of sugar in my cherry lemonades. Yeah. Knows what the sugar, the flavor coloring, you know, the cherry flavor coloring was. Um, the oxidized fats of the corn oil we were cooking the corn dogs in. Right knows about the quality of the hot dogs and the cheese sticks those were probably majorly no not probably mm -hmm. were capo farmed you know factory farmed to just like the just the environment standing in these unbelievable bright lights and this environment it was just so toxic in the mall like, like everything everything about it was so pro-inflammatory everything about it yeah. And so I literally don't think, I mean, my mom's idea of a vegetable or our idea of a vegetable in my household was a can of creamed corn, corn on the cob or green beans, of which none are vegetables. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So there was this, I had this totally pro-inflammatory diet that was, and I had no anti-inflammatory things in my diet, none. Right. And so that thing yeah. literally helped to reset something in me, it reset my taste buds. It, it, it gave me some time to really get into a spiritual place because it's, you know, being in a fasted state really opens you up in a lot mm. of different ways as well. It definitely allowed me to start to ask questions, get curious about why I was in the position that I was in. And it put me immediately into, and ironically, from age 16 until my diagnosis, I put myself on a vegan diet. Mm. I grew up in Kansas. My grandmother worked for a meatpacking company for 50 years. I became like the hardcore, you know, like animal cruelty. But my diet was pretty much iceberg lettuce and Velveeta cheese because there was no cheese right. and Velveeta cheese. And, um, and so I became just even more militant with my vegan diet in the beginning. But this time I started adding vegetables, of which I did not like at all. Mm -hmm. Because I was adding vegetables, it wasn't even about the vegan or not vegan or whatever. It was about bringing on some cofactors and some gentle antioxidants that were missing in my diet from beforehand. It started to stabilize some things for me. Oh my, my gosh, the next 20 years has been a, a 30 years has been a, an a exploration of every diet you can imagine of what fits and didn't fit and what fit at certain times and didn't fit in certain times. But what was certain is fasting was integral to me turning off the mechanism of inflammation. Yeah which is the mechanism that drives metastasis, drives angiogenesis, which is the blood formation to the tumors, mm. drives things like ascites. So ascites fluid is a form of, metast of um, angiogenesis. 
mm-hmm. drives stress hormone cortisol, drives estrogen hormone, which in my cancer type was very estrogenic in nature, because I was also put on very high potency estrogen uh, birth control pills when I was 11 for that. So you can just see the wheels turning of how this is all coming together. And then knowing about my SNPs, not until 2006, you know, to know how much that had played. But yeah, that, that was the moment that I suddenly realized accidentally that I'd stumbled upon probably the most profound healing method that there was out there. And it was free. Absolutely. Now, no, most people would think you fasted for two and a half months. You must have lost like 100 pounds. Weirdly, because what happened <laughs> day five on a water fast is you start, you switch over into human growth hormone and you start mm. to muscle contain, you know, contained versus muscle drain. Yeah. And so what was happening for me is weirdly, I looked more skinny and cachectic before I fasted because I had this mm. weird like the quash your core syndrome look where my little tiny arms and legs and my big old belly. So I I looked even more malnourished then than I did when I was 20, 30, you know, or excuse me, 30, 45 days into this process. And then even another bit further as I started to introduce very slow things, very, Mm -hmm. very radically, still very, very calorie restricted, still all liquid or very soft for another month or so beyond that but everything started normalizing. My body started to find its balance again. All of that Mm. fluid in my abdomen, which I'd had pulled, I had it pulled on four different occasions. Yeah, four different occasions, the ascites fluid pulled out and I would just fill right back up every single time. And it was excruciating, the the pulling it out and it was excruciating when it filled back up. Mm. Finally, slowly I would fill up slower and they would need to take out less over that two and a half months. By the end of the two and a half months, I just had a little bit of inoculate, like a loculated kind of closed up in some little pockets in my abdomen, fluid things. They just couldn't even get the needle into to get any more stuff out. It had kind of jelly, you turn into like a jelly. So, but then it didn't matter anymore because I was feeling better. I was breathing better, et cetera. And I started to explore what else I could add into the mix. And that launched me into this curiosity that suddenly I realized I was double major biology chemistry by the, at that time of the semester when I was diagnosed. By the start of the next semester, I'd switched my major to biology psychology and basically mm. created an echo-neuroimmunology track. And yep. I all of my education into basically not at that time, again, not expecting to save my life, but to understand my life. Yep. And and that then started to sort of like, whoa, okay, I'm past the three-month mark, I'm past the four-month, the six-month, the one year. They had no idea what to do with me. In fact, my surviving past that time actually angered the doctor I'd had a consult with after they let, I left the ER, she was actually very angry. Like, I don't even understand why, like we've, we've talked since then, but she was enraged by this. Like Hmm. she was mad that I didn't die. And she was mad that I didn't do it with, you know, didn't try Western medicine once I stabilized. And at that point stabilized, I just, again, never expecting anything. I just got curious. I just kept digging deeper and deeper and deeper, no expectations. So, you know, and that's the piece is that I, I'm wanting your listeners to leave. It's like, we have to keep learning. And, you know, yep. that's where it started. I just wanted to take a moment and tell you guys about Paleo Valley and their apple cider vinegar complex. This is a phenomenal product to help improve your digestion, your blood sugar stability, and your energy levels. 
Most people are dealing with blood sugar imbalances, and that can lead you to have a crash in the afternoon where you need a nap. It can also lead to unwanted weight gain, to inflammation affecting your joints, your skin, and all different parts of your body. Well, you know what? Apple cider vinegar is one of the best things for helping improve your blood sugar stability. You simply take it with meals and it helps reduce the glycemic impact of the food that you're consuming. And that's gonna help your body to burn fat for fuel. It's gonna reduce overall levels of insulin. And insulin is your pro-inflammatory fat storage hormone. We wanna get insulin under control. You know what I love about the apple cider vinegar complex that Paleo Valley made is they have a thousand milligrams of apple cider vinegar, which is equivalent to one and a half tablespoons. That is really the clinical dose to get the best results. On top of that, they combined it with 300 milligrams of turmeric, which is a powerful anti-inflammatory herb, 300 milligrams of ginger. These are warming herbs that support good digestion, good stomach acid production. They also help to reduce inflammation in the gut and throughout the body. And they have 150 milligrams of cinnamon, which is one of the best herbs for improving insulin sensitivity and blood sugar stability. And they added in 50 milligrams of lemon into the apple cider vinegar complex to support bile flow and pancreatic enzymes. So you can really optimize your digestion and your nutrient absorption. All these ingredients are organic. So you can rest assured you're getting the highest quality product. So if you wanna check out the apple cider vinegar complex, go to paleovalley.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS to save 15% off today. So at the root, the main things you did were you fasted and you really worked on your mind and your emotions. You read great books you yeah. that, that helped challenge you to go deep in those areas. And obviously you weren't eating. And, and when you don't fast for a long period of time, for anybody that's done that, you do realize, you know, the ketones start going up into your brain. And it's almost, it's, it's this really unique experience where you feel weak and strong at the same time, right? There's kind of like this, this combination of your body feels somewhat weak because you haven't eaten in so long, but, it, but your mind and there's an element, it's hard to explain, but you kind of feel this inner strength. Totally. Totally. Right? Your mind becomes stronger and sharp. Yes. And you're, you get clarity is unbelievable. Right. Clarity, but even through spiritual clarity, I guess. Yes. Describe it in this distrust, this faith that is mm -hmm. blind. You don't have any like metrics. You're like, oh, and there it is. Just gonna hang my hat on that. It's just this inner peace, this inner knowing. Yeah. And and for me, at that time in my life, I had never experienced that before. Mm. So it was sort of my gateway drug <clears throat> and everything we do today. Um, I mean, it really goes back to, you know, in the Bible, it talks about prayer and fasting. Totally. That's basically what she did. And and the craziest thing is every single culture, yes, faith has this the, yep. it, co evolved with this process, right? From the of time, and we then terrify in the West. We terrify people to do this. No, right. how dare they? In fact, an interesting thing: 1909. There was a great research um, project, Mareshi M. O-R-E-S-C-H-I, I believe, did this great research about basically fasting people mm -hmm. is what was, that was their treatment of choice for cancer. Right. At the time. That was in vogue until the 1970s. 
And in the 1970s, basically physicians took a huge pivot and said, we can't traumatize our cancer patients further by starving them. We have to just basically load them, which has led to this culture and this belief system where we are today, which is directly feeding the inflammation, which is we are overfed and undernourished more than ever. And we're overfed with the wrong things and we're underfed, you know, with what we need. And so that's what kind of turned. And we have been, it's been a 50, almost a 50 year experiment trying to get us back out of that hot mess and get this place of balance. And thankfully we have people like the Walter Longos of the world and the other, you know, the, the Jocelyn Tans of the world and the Clemens of the world who are doing the research to show us that intermittent fasting, ketogenic diets, calorie restricted diets actually have a place at the table with direct Mm. tumor reduction, not just support of the terrain. So let's go into some of that science. First, let's start talking about what cancer actually is. What is that in the body? Kind of an esoteric term that people just don't really understand. They think it's like a death sentence. What's actually happening? Cancer. So first of all, we all have cancer. Every one of us. Mm -hmm. All of us do. It is of us. It is the cells live in every single one of us. Cancer, the way we qualify cancer, because when you say cancer, it's not a word, it's a paragraph, right? Like it brings such a connotation here. But cancer really is a process. We make it sound like it's an event or a thing, but it is a process. And it is a process where over time you have mixed signaling, mixed fuel choices, um, accumulated toxins um, and damage to the mitochondria, which are the primary fuel sources of our body that hit it over time. And those poor mitochondria become less efficient, less in number, more vulnerable. And in as such, they're, one of their primary jobs is apoptosis, which is to basically say, ooh, there's a damaged cell, let's kill it off and send it, you know, mm. send it on its way and make, make room for something new. It loses that ability. It loses its ability to recognize, like send out the signaling pathways to recognize and clean up invaders, you know, like uh, different inflammatory markers, cytokines, mm. different immune issues going on. It loses, it kind of gets really dull you know, in its response. Um, and then the other big piece here is that it does, it no longer protects the DNA. Mm. So where we have said since also about a hundred years now, we started talking about the somatic um, theory of cancer, which is basically the genetic theory of cancer. We, a lot of people like, I see these two camps saying genetic, metabolic, right. genetic, metabolic. It's a little bit of both, but, mm-hmm. but the chicken and the egg comes in is you don't typically get the genetic component. It's very, very rare. It's less than 5% of the population actually has a true genetic mutation that can lead to some problems with cancer and other chronic illness, but 95% or better. The mitochondria are the guards. And when they're not doing their job, well, the DNA become vulnerable and then you create some other pathways. So you can have DNA damage, you can have signaling, you can have metabolic. So metabolic being, are you a sugar burner? Are you a fat burner? Are you mm-hmm. stuck in one way or the other? We're supposed to be a hybrid engine. We're supposed to be able to use either one at any given time and then be able to easily flow back and forth. That's called metabolic flexibility. Now, less than 12% of Americans have that superpower. Mm-hmm. That innate wow. God-given superpower of metabolic flexibility is missing in more than 88% of us today. So there's that. There's the toxic accumulations and things we're being exposed to that no generations before us have ever seen. 
from you know, the 80,000 plus chemicals that have been introduced since the 1960s that have um, less than 200 been properly tested. Uh, one study I know of only through the IARC has done a study on how those interact with each other, but really we haven't even looked at how it all comes together as a toxic stew. We've introduced hormones into our food supply, into our human supply. Um, we've introduced plastics. I mean, if you ever saw The Graduate, you know, that's a new, plastics are new. Hormones are new. Um, factory farming is new. Chemicals are new. These are things that were never exposed to. EMFs are new, yeah. right? Blue light, new. And you can just start to feel the weight of it all over time. We also made a lot of changes um, in our diet in the 1850s. You know, we went into the industrial food revolution and we decided, wow, this is a really good time. We now have the cool technology to mill everything. We can make food available 24 seven, wherever you live on the planet. And we started milling flour, sugar, salt in a very toxic, processed, unnatural form. And it has just picked up momentum worldwide to the point today that the food we have today, it's like Frankenfood. Our ancestors, our recent ancestors would not recognize what we eat today. Right. And the density of those foods has dropped dramatically since World War II, thanks to our, the way we treat our soil, the way we treat our livestock. Um, so all of these things have accumulated and made that bucket, our mitochondria, very, very vulnerable. And the big sort of stoke, the big like light of the match of that literally is the inflammation. All of those things we just described cause inflammation, but mm -hmm. inflammation causes all of those things. They're, they are not mutually, you know, they're not individuated. They're not siloed off from one another. And so it's quite interesting to me that you're having this summit because we're talking about inflammation. I think everyone thinks about rubber, you know, they think about red swelling and you're like, oh Lordy, it's so much more than that. It's about, you know, cortisol. It's about, it's about insulin. It's about the non-healing wound. It's about nutrient deficiencies. It's about uh, poor fatty acid, uh, you know, uh, metabolism and taking us out of a one-to-one -one ratio of sixes to threes of your omega six to three ratio of fatty acids to closer to anywhere from studies saying 20 to 36 to one, depending on your diet and lifestyle. We have changed so much in such a short period of time. We've not been able to adapt, which I believe is the direct cause of this loss of metabolic flexibility is we've made too many changes too quick and our body can't adapt. And so back to your specific question of cancer, cancer is basically all systems fall apart, all communication, mm. it all becomes disconnected. And suddenly you have this cell that's been part of a whole organism. And, and think about this on the big picture of the world around us right now. And suddenly it loses itself in the midst of that. Mm. And some of us get lost and we shut down. Some of us get lost and we fight out. Right. Cancer can do that. It can get very dormant, just hang out forever and ever and ever and ever and ever until something wakes it up. Or it can like immediately explode out and let you know it's there and become the big bully of the system and take over. But ultimately, it is disconnected from its societal norm. It's right. lost communication. It's lost its way. It's it's rogue. One of my colleagues, Dr. Tina Kazor, she calls it a, a sociopathic cell. Right. So completely divided. And they will continue to cause mass destruction without mm. of the host until, frankly, when the host goes, they go too. But they're so caught up in that explosion that yep. they, they lose sight of that. It's a really good analogy. I've always thought of it as like a selfish cell or like a criminal cell. Cause most, cause the way our cells are designed, they'll give up their lives and they do every day for the good of the whole.
Yes. Right? Like a good soldier, right? In a sense. Whereas a cancer cell is selfish. It's going to take, it's going to try to hoard resources to the detriment of the human being. Even though when we die, the cancer dies. Exactly. It doesn't really understand the full picture and it's hoarding resources. Exactly. And we we are living that experience around us in the world today. So we can see that happening of yeah. the loss of our resources. Right. Even just the way we interact with another human being is interesting yeah. today. You know, we've created this sort of us and then this very polarized. Mm. And even the way we yeah. treat cancer and think about cancer, we treat it like it's an outside invader. Like it is right. an, an uninvited house guest that has come in and overstayed its, you know, welcome. And now it's knocking the crap out of everything in your house, right? <laughs> it's like, yep. oh, we look at it. And so we then think, well, we gotta call the cops. We gotta, we gotta, <laughs> funds. we gotta, you know, we gotta go crazy and we've gotta like blow it up and get rid of it. It's this anti, it's this war, it's this battle mm. mentality. And we relate to that because we've been a warring society, right. you know, for many, so we can easily fall into that understanding. But what I offer to my, my patients, to doctors, to colleagues, you know, just to anybody who will listen, is that cancer is us, and it is the ultimate messenger, and it is the ultimate opportunity to find out where you have betrayed yourself, where you have lost sight of yourself, where you've lost mm. connection to self or other or spirit or whatever that may be. Right or you're not feeling well-nourished, where you're not feeling in good communication, heard, seen, understood. Mm. When I start to explore my patients, I mean, that's why the 10th chapter or the 10th drop in the bucket is mental emotional. I've yet, and I've been doing this for a long time, thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. In fact, I had my doctor class last night and we presented four amazing cases. And even these 38 doctors that have gotten through the program so far with many more to come in the future, they're all in awe, including conventional oncologists to say every single one of these cases we're seeing has an emotional root. Every mm -hmm. single one of them has a loss of connection to self or other. There, therein lies the issue. So we we can get very myopic down to the mitochondrial metabolic targeted pathways, which is yep. super and fascinating. And we can definitely do a lot with that. And I'm into that too. But we also need to remember that wrapped around those little mitochondria mm -hmm. is this whole organism, this whole being, this whole soul, that is also needing is neglected and, and disenfranchised and needs to be brought back into the fold. There was a cool study. This makes me think about this this yeah. morning in news readings. They talk about in certain cultures, when someone does something bad in the community, you know, in our world, we like incarcerate them. We put them in jail. We do. In certain cultures, they will actually, and I actually witnessed this once on the Diné, on, on the Navajo Nation, when I was working there in a medicine tent one summer. So I've seen it personally, but I was reading this article this morning that they'll take the person who, Went, did something bad. Let's say they stole a car as an example. They bring them into the middle of the circle and the entire tribe gathers around them. And for as long as it takes, whether it's a few hours, a few days or longer, they tell that person all the things they love about them. Hmm. They tell them all the things wow. that are right in them. And it changes them. Yeah, it's so powerful. And it gives me goosebumps just to see it hmm. because- that's what I also witness when my patients start to understand, like we can still be pushing back the tumor. We can still be cleaning up the terrain, but you still need to tell those cells a different story. Right. Yep. Like Deepak Chopra says, every cell is eavesdropping on your thoughts. Totally. hundred percent. And, and we believe we are what we believe. 
Really good, really good stuff. And I know that you look at the ACE score, Adverse Childhood Experience Score, and I'd love for you to explain a little bit more about that and how that plays a role in formation of cancer and inflammation in the body. I mean, there are, it's volumes coming out on this now. Like I said, there's been, I've been hearing about it literally since the 90s, but research has started on it closer to the 70s and 80s. But ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Events. Mm-hmm. And there's simple, like you can just go online, Google the questionnaire, the ACE score questionnaire, and it's 10 questions that ask about situations you experienced in your life before the age of 18. And what the literature and the studies have shown is that the more yeses or the more checks on the box of those 10 questions that you have, the higher your risk for severe chronic illness in your young adulthood and and adulthood. Like it's, you you are fully expected to have some type of an Mm. autoimmune disorder or chronic illness or cancer type, et cetera, at a young age. In fact, today, another news story was that young 14 year old boy who won um, the, like the chef, he won this amazing chef deal. Like he, like this master chef and he's 14 years old and he just died today of a very rare, rare tumor. And what compelled me about his story is a year before his diagnosis, both of his parents died, um, in a domestic violence issue. You can just look at this little, this little boy and you can almost imagine the story that led up to that point of what he was, you know, you are positive. This was a 10 out of 10 for this kid. Right. And that type of grief and loss in a point where your whole world is your parents, even if they're most, mm. the most functional beings on the planet, leave. Of course, these things happen. And this, this young man who also amazing resilience and what he did and what he created in that short time after, never complaining of, of what he experienced, never complaining of his treatments, so, you know, dying like this, the gushing of love and support for this young man just blow my mind. But that is so the story we see spoken again yeah. and again in a, in a variety of ways. And that the research shows that the more yeses you have, the higher these incidents. And it changes, it changes a few things. It changes your stress response, which stress is the one of the biggest drivers yeah. of inflammation. So there's that. And when we are under high stress, we also, when we drive inflammation, we kick up IL-6, interleukin-6. We also kick up the mother of inflammation, which is NF-kappa-beta. And NF-kappa-beta is basically sits on your immune system and it just keeps cultivating more and more stress. It like, likes to bring a lot of friends to the party. So it just keeps that going. And that mm. higher ACE score really kicks up both IL-6 and NF-kappa-beta. It kicks up problems with stress response. So it's damaging, doing stuff with the amygdala, some of our primal responses to the fight or flight issues. It causes problems with our vagal nerve response. So we often have times of how we digest and rest and, and connect and breathe all based on that nerve, nerve innervation. But what we've also seen interesting enough in postmortem, you know, in brain scans of people still living and postmortem brain um, autopsies are actual functional structural changes in the brain. And so it's almost like these poor kids. Um, and I say this because I have that I'm a 10 out of 10 on my ACE score. The neural pathways to rewire them. First of all, you have to even be aware that you have them. And I will speak from clear experience that mm-hmm. people will never have that opportunity to even understand that they have an ACE score. Right. And that's really sad to me. I'd like to see that change. And I've got big plans for that in the future. But, but when you do start to realize, and I actually have every patient I ever work with or teach the doctors I work with to screen every patient for this. And I say, basically, if they have more than three ACE scores, you need to be on hypervigilance with these patients. They're going to have a harder right. time to get into remission, maintain remission, um, specific to the cancer world or deal with what other chronic illnesses until they start to rewire this puppy up here. 
And so it's, it's this brain derived neurofactor. You probably have people talking about that. Yeah. That's a player in this. There's so many ways to activate that. What I think again is so fascinating. Fasting. Yeah. One of the most profound ways, again, it makes me emotional to think about that mm. accidental find of mine all those years ago. I think I started to rewire my entire system because of that. Yeah, you um, did. Yeah. yeah. Prayer. Right. Meditation. Um, psychotropics. Okay. Yep. Psychotropics, pharmaceutical, but like, you know, definitely. And, you know, one thing I, I don't often share this in many places, but um, I was offered and took advantage of a very high dose of psilocybin shortly after my diagnosis. Mm. And I think that was integral and in making some changes stick. Right. It's like I started the yep. process, helped me see because I was still so in the victim role. Mm. And so in that place, it helped me see some things very differently in the world around me. Travel, taking in mm. language, anything that changes your experience yep. will change that way. And I started doing that. I mean, I thought I was going to die. So I, I sold everything I owned and went on a backpacking trip through Europe and then ran out of money and ended up in the Middle East. And, and then, you know, like, all these, like the crazy things here that happened, like that was also a key to my survival. Mm. So people say, well, what is the one thing? I'm like, there, there isn't a one thing. Yeah. I just got lucky. Now I can look at the research now that's coming out that was never available or talked about then and go, well, that probably made a difference. Well, that probably made a difference. Well, that probably made a difference. And then I'm reading all the cool studies that say, yeah, that definitely made a difference um, along that. But the ACE score definitely makes it more challenging to prevent, overcome, and maintain. Plain and simple for mm. chronic illness. So we need to be screening all of our patients for this. Everything yeah, it's so, in, so important. And I know we have these um, these cell guardians, right? Like the P53 gene, we have the BRCA gene, different things like that, that are often looked at. Now these genes, obviously we can have abnormalities in these genes, but also we turn on yes. poor expression of them through stress and inflammation. How does that work? How do we turn those on? Well, okay. Do you want me to give you more of the labor? Yeah, let's, let's okay. start with what they are. Cause people have heard of like the BRCA gene and the P53 gene. So what is that? I mean, I, I mentioned it was a cell guardian. What is its role? And then how does kind of being in this state of chronic inflammation. Sure. Perfect. Turn on a poor expression of those genes. That's perfect. So the beauty is a lot of people, when we think genes like BRCA or P53, yeah. we think it's somehow you know, like in cement non-changeable, and we're just sort of right. a, a sitting duck, nothing we can do about it. But the cool thing about the vast majority of our genome um, is that we do have influences and that we can change expression, turning things on and off at will or even accidentally or unbeknownst to us. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, things like the P53 is a tumor, re is a tissue repair, gene repair system, okay? P53, about 50% of the population have a wounded P53 on the planet right now. So it's like a flip of a coin. Some of mm. us have one that works, some of us have one that don't. So for those that have one that don't, and you, you, it's hard, like you can test for this, but they're extremely expensive and not very, most of them are in research environments. But to assume, it's best to assume that it's damaged. So you want to take care of it. You want to take care of that. And that is exactly by tending to those drops in the bucket we've talked about. But some of the most profound ways to make your P53 behave um, the way it was designed to behave are things like sulforaphane, cruciferous vegetables, 
you know, for when, whenever you wanted to throw your broccoli at your parents when they told you to eat it as a kid, now you want to give them gratitude. <laughs> There's really good data on this. Um, curcumin, very, very powerful. IV vitamin C, mm. um, fasting yet again, ketogenic yeah. diet impact on this. When people think about the BRCA gene, that uh, today in our modern times, it just conjures up Angelina Jolie. And I don't mean to throw her under the bus and that's what I'm doing, but it's a perfect point that mm -hmm. she had a family line of, of this genetic mutation. And in her own uh, early diagnosis, she opted to have her breasts removed. And um, because of her genes, she also opted to have her ovaries removed. That in her world and how our medical system teaches, that's considered prevention. And yet I can tell you now, I've had nearly a dozen patients who had done all the prolactic surgeries because of a strong family genetic, you know, ATM, Lynch, or um, BRCA mutation, which are all DNA repair mutations and methylation problem mutations. Right. They all ought to just cut parts off. And what, did, what that did for them is it gave them a false sense of security. It did not encourage them to get curious and dig deeper and change their environment. And so out of those, out of this group that did this, that came to me later with cancer, stage four, seven of those have passed on. Mm. And they were so angry. They were so angry they did everything right. Right. That's just unfortunately misinformation. I had the BRCA gene. I was diagnosed young. Like I look, I just this morning I was looking on my, it's like I just lost another cousin to another, like it's just, it's everywhere in my family. Yeah. And my family has a tendency to just want to cut things out and move on. Yeah. I still have all my parts. Okay. I'm the only person in my family still has a thyroid or breasts or ovaries. Or you're like, I will be the only person in my family to probably go through a natural menopause. <laughs> Never happens. <laughs> 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 like the weird thing here. It's like, I, we don't like there, I've not even had an opportunity to see what it's really supposed to be like in my family of origin, because we mm. are so quick to medicate or eradicate or remove. Right. But what happens is when you take something out in a system that has that vulnerability, you actually wake up a lot of sleeping tigers. Those are called mother stem cells. All right. Mm. And if you have a terrain that is vulnerable, that is being a lot of drops in the bucket added to it, you can end up with stage four breast cancer in your big toe for crying out loud, even mm. if you don't have breasts any longer. You can end up with stage four ovarian cancer in your brain if you no longer have ovaries. This is what we are seeing. We need to teach our patients, frankly, our doctors, a different understanding of what this really means. So if I see a BRCA mutation, I just go, yeah, I just have some methylation issues. Great. We've got, we've mm -hmm. got tools in this. Interestingly enough, a BRCA mutation does not have a difference in survival rate than anybody else with breast cancer. So we make a big ado about a gene that we give all the power to, that yeah. by the end of the day, it does not make any difference if you have BRCA or no BRCA with breast cancer. Because there are a number of other tumor suppressing genes as well. So we're, we're focusing on one, we're highlighting one, but there's a whole bunch. It's kind of like taking BPA out of plastic. There's still a whole bunch of other chemicals, even though that's been the most well-researched. Yes. Plastic still has a whole bunch of phthalates and things that are gonna cause problems. It's kind Great. of the same idea. The perfect idea is a great analogy for that because we have these other mutations, but again, we keep focusing on the tumor, the target or the mutation, and then we keep going at it in a single agent, address it, addressing it with a single agent. Yeah. This model has been failing us for a good 75 years or more. And yet we keep 
funneling massive right. of money into it. And now like all the rage is off label drugs. Guess yep. what? They're great. It's so good that there's something different than chemo, but it isn't. It's targeting yeah. the tumor and the same target on the cell. It's not changing the terrain. In fact, it is still making the terrain sick. Do yeah. we still use those therapies very precise and very carefully and very effectively and very elegantly? Absolutely. Can we bring mm -hmm. on other tools to make them work better and cause less harm to the healthy tissue? Absolutely. But do not get seduced that right. that's somehow going to get you out of the hot water you're sitting in right now. Yeah. And that's really key. So when we look, another interesting thing is if you really put if you put them all together on a table and you go, okay, which one should I really be concerned with? We should be a lot more concerned about the PIK3CA mm. or the MCHFR uh, epigenetic hiccup right. than BRCA ever. And yeah. yet 80% of our population and 70% of cancers. And guess what? Specific with the PIK3CA, that's all metabolic. That's right. all folks. Right. And the MTHFR, that's just about how you process everything, you know, yeah. through your pathways, your methylation pathways, your nourishment. So if you're if you're malnourished and your folates and you're malnourished and your B12s and you're malnourished and your selenium and your zinc and your uh, vitamin D3, your vitamin K and your vitamin A, you are a hot mess waiting to happen for cancer. We mm. see all those patients with cancer. Those tend to be the, the nutrients they're deficient in. Those also happen to be a lot of the nutrient deficiencies of particular dietary choices out there in the world today. And so we don't, I don't get dogmatic about a diet. I say test, assess, address, don't guess. So let's take a look at your labs. Let's take a look at your epigenetics. Let's see if that diet's working for you. And if not, let's change gears. Let's become flexible, not just metabolically flexible, but intellectually, emotionally, spiritually flexible. To survive on this planet, we have to get out of our dogma and out of our polarization. We have to start becoming more holistic, more integra integrated, and much more, um, curious about what's going on in each of us as an individual that makes us tick. And so all yeah. of those pieces, how inflammation hits that is when you have like acute inflammation, probably people are already talking about this is fabulous. You mm -hmm. need that. You cut yourself, you need to deal with You stub your toe, you need to deal with that. But in a couple of days, that should all quiet down. All those little cytokine, all those little chemicals should like, thanks, you've done our job. We're going back to the office. Chronic inflammation basically sits on top of the gene express the gene repair expression plain and simple yeah. so if you have an elevated c-reactive protein your BRCA gene is not working if you have a c mm. uh, an elevated c-reactive protein your atm gene your um, gata 3 your check 2 your tp53 just as a couple examples if you have an, a, an elevated CRP at the time of your cancer diagnosis, your response to chemotherapy, and CRP, of course, is the kind of mother marker that we can check right. in the office or in a walk-in lab situation, if it's elevated above a functional range, so if it's elevated above one, depending if the range is one to three, or above 0.1, if the range is 0.1 to 0.3, you are going to have a poor outcome with your chemo. Hmm. You're going to have more side effects. You're going to have more drug resistance. You're going to have more mutations. You're going to have poorer prognosis. Why are we not like that is and literally yeah. just put in CRP and prognosis of cancer in a PubMed search. And you can probably pull it up right now. It's probably like 1,291 sightings. Um, yeah. It's something ridiculous. It's something so obvious and it is never done. I never see that hmm. test unless a patient has heard you or I on a podcast and runs yeah. out to contact your little what labs should you run. Yeah. I, yeah. It's making the rounds among my tribe and they love it. And I talk about that in my own discussions. Like, 
we have to do our due diligence to see, are we on fire? Because a lot of inflammation is silent. Right. Absolutely. So high sensitivity C-reactive protein is obviously one of the key labs you mentioned. It should be under one if the range is one to three. It should be under 0.1 if the range is 0.1 to 0.3. What are some other labs that people can look at? Well, we definitely want to, I mean, some basics. You can just take a look at the sedimentation rate, ESR, yeah. that rate. That shows how quickly the blood is falling out of solution. The blood cells are mm -hmm. falling out of solution. If it falls really fast, it's like, good. We've got nice, a lot of good, everything's moving around, slipping, sliding in there beautifully. If it takes a while, if that range is about 10 on your labs, there's some little fight, there's some gunk that your pore cells are trying to move through. All right. Mm. And that could show autoimmunity, that could show, you know, a progressing cancer, that can show viscosity issues, cardiovascular issues. It can show a lot of things. You want to be very smooth and slippery. LDH, LDH used to be part of our general CMP about. 15, 18 years ago, they took it out of our CMP, our, our complete metabolic panel, which is ridiculous because it is right. by far the most underrated and most mm. powerful lab we can run on everybody. And I've been running on everybody since the 90s, right? So I've been watching these trends that LDH, my husband taught me being a, an expert biochemist um, and also kind of expert on the Krebs cycle, everything. He's like, basically, if you see an elevated LDH, that tells you immediately that your mitochondria are off. Right. Like plain and simple. And yep. H is the average of five different enzymes. And those enzymes are related to different tissue types in the body. And so if you have an LDH that's elevated or weirdly low, and you're like, that doesn't fit because their CRP is high, their set rate's high. Mm. Always. In fact, I prefer to bring the LDH isoenzymes on board because it's very educational to the patient to go, oh yeah, yeah, it's definitely in my, you know, we can go, yep, it's in your lungs, it's in your kidneys, it's in your bones, it's in mm. your blood cells. And so a really interesting one is we'll see patients who've been on chemo for a very, very long time. And you'll see their LDH going up and up and up. And the doctors are like, Oh, your cancer's progressing. And I'll do an LDH isoenzyme. And what we're actually seeing is it's their LD one or two, which is all about their marrow. And what's happening now is that the standard of care chemo that they're on is now causing a new cancer. It's causing a blood cancer. Okay. Yep. So I watch those trends happen. Hmm. You know, we know that C-reactive proteins literally are prognostic in every tumor type out there for everything we have already mentioned. And my patients with the best outcomes, best response to chemo, radiation, targeted therapies, hormone blocking therapies, integrative therapies, alternative therapies are when we get that CRP down. But the CRP is not by itself. The other thing that shows me how inflamed a body is, is a hemoglobin A1C. Mm, yeah. and I like those to look at those together. Because basically a hemoglobin A1C is, is how fast are you rusting on the inside? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> how fast are tissues aging, oxidizing, and they're a hundred, they're so interrelated, that process. Yeah. And so that's what's really cool is just fasting. You you turn down, I mean, maybe one of the mechanisms of fasting, maybe the research shows this, is you drop that insulin level and you stop oxidizing that tissue pretty much right. in its tracks. So that goes hand in hand with this metabolic approach. And then you start to go, okay, well, what are the obstacles to cure that are causing inflammation? Well, maybe that's ongoing, unrelenting stress and a poor response to stress because who, who isn't under stress these days? Mm -hmm. So how do you become accountable to yourself and start to work on ways to mitigate your stress, avoid stress where possible um, and deal with it differently where not possible to avoid it. And so educating our patients into a lot of different ways there. There's a million different cool tools out there for that. There's no one way and you have to explore until you find the one that works for you. 
And that just goes on and on. If your microbiome, if you just keep ingesting the same foods that are irritating your gut and your eosinophils are high. So if your eosinophils are high, you are being exposed to something that is causing inflammation. Mm. It, it's, it's, that's just plain and simple. So if your eosinophils on your CBC, your complete blood count are above two, you have inflammation and it's something you're ingesting most often. Sometimes it's something you're breathing, but it's almost always what you're ingesting. Could be a parasite too, right? Especially if you are above seven and the basophils are above zero. When mm. I see all three of those, so monocytes, basophils, and eosinophils high in my functional range, we yeah. just have, we got, a, we got a bug on board. Right. And the bug could be causing endotox, you know, exotox or endotoxins and could be competing for yeah. resources and causing inflammation, all of these things. So when we talk about inflammation, we also, in the world of functional medicine, even naturopathic medicine, conventional medicine, we get myopic and they're yeah. like, going to give you an anti-inflammatory and call it good. Yeah. That's like cutting off the breast. Right. That's just like taking the BPA out of the plastic. You have to go and find the source of that inflammation and you that's have right. to deal with it. Yeah. And that takes some deep detective work. I just want to interrupt this podcast to tell you how important your immune system is and how it protects you from viruses, bacteria, parasites, and other pathogens. You see, your body was created to overcome the challenges from the environment. However, you must be an active participant and work to make your body stronger and more resilient to stress. And that is why I created our 10-in-1 Immunocharge formula because it's designed to help you do that. As I was studying the immune system, I found that there are critical nutrients that really support your body and give you more immune modulating power. These include things like quercetin, resveratrol, vitamin D, vitamin A, selenium, zinc, vitamin C, N-acetylcysteine, vitamin K2, and magnesium. And I used to supplement with all of these. I was taking 14 different capsules to get all these critical nutrients. And that is why I designed a product called Immunocharge. I actually put all of these nutrients in their clinical dosages that actually work in your body that are research-based. And all you have to do is take four capsules a day. So I take two capsules twice a day to help strengthen my immune function, to help keep inflammation under control. And so this really works and it really helps. It's called Immunocharge. You can actually get 30% off by going to store.drjockers.com forward slash products forward slash immunocharge, I-M-M-U-N-O-C-H-A-R-G-E and use the coupon code immune30 at checkout to save 30% off on immunocharge. Whatever you do, you've got to take, you got to do everything you can to keep your immune system as strong and healthy as possible so you can be resilient to the different environmental stressors you face. Immunocharge is there to help you with that. Again, go to store.drjockers.com forward slash products forward slash immunocharge. Use the coupon code immune30 at checkout to save 30% off today. So let's go back to these labs. LDH, ideal range, yeah. 140 to 180. Is that is that where you like it? I like um, 145 to 175 if it's okay. a West, I like it under like 350 to 450. So okay. those labs, most of your patients work. Because I don't want to freak anybody out who goes right, right. Like it's 350. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about the lab that we run. So yeah, yeah. There's there's multiple labs that will have different measurements based on uh, what what they're measuring. We talked about the C ratchet protein. Yep. Just make sure people are ordering the quantitative because sometimes we'll just say under right. three, and that means diddly. Is it 2.99 or is it 0. 0.6? Right. Right. So, 
need to know exactly precisely what that number is. Yeah. And then hemoglobin A1C, where do you like to see that? Like under what, 5.2, 5? I'm a little bit, because by the time we get 5.2, we're already starting to churn up. Right, right. The thing about Western medicine is they're like, 5.6, you're fine. 5.7, you're diabetic. We're not giving anybody a launch yeah. to say, maybe you should pull this, this, pull this airplane off the tarmac, you know, like, <laughs> and I love when people get called pre-diabetic. That's one of my big soapbox issues. Like you, you if you're pre-diabetic, you're diabetic. You're already, you're an aspiring diabetic. It's already happened unless you absolutely do something to, mm. to turn it around. So don't wait for that right. diet to make those changes. And, and if you're definitely above 5.2, you're already well on your way to that point. So those yeah. are insulin is another one because we have because yeah. normal hemoglobin A1C, you have people with normal glucose, et cetera. Insulin is another one. We look at the ranges. Remember that the labs are based on the average of the population. We do not have a healthy population. So you do not <laughs> have average in this department. And so with the insulin in my category in the cancer world, I'm keeping it three or under. Wow. Um, you're keeping it low. Yeah. In my healthy patients, I like it five or under. Right. Yeah. That's, that's typically what I'm looking at, but that makes sense with, with cancer patients, you're trying to really bring it down because you're trying to cut off the fuel source for the cancer. Exactly. And, it, and that's not forever. That's like in that moment to help, because also when your insulin is that low, there's a whole therapy out there called insulin potentiation therapy, Right. which is like, let's drive the glucose as low as we can give us smaller doses of chemotherapy, which the cancer cells are now so delirious and starving, they push all the healthy cells out of the way and go gobble up that chemo. Yeah, That seems like a really great idea. And I was trained in it many years ago and I was like very excited, but I always had this lingering nagging concern of, well, what about the insulin we're giving them? Because when I see right. this now go through IPT, great. We were great at pushing back the tumor initially, but then I'm usually seeing them when it's exploding everywhere again. Mm. And my first place to start is insulin and insulin growth factor. And every single time it's off the charts. So we can do the same thing. Uh, people like Dr. Uh, Robert Elsinger, I think Elsinger, if I'm saying that right, Ellingser, he does keto potentiated therapy. There's others that mm. do like, you can do like DCA potentiated therapy. You can do fasted potentiated therapy. There's a lot of different ways to get that glucose down, make those cancer cells vulnerable. You don't have to take it as far as everyone thought initially. Just even if you right. get it 70, you are creating a stress in the environment. And that's what the work of people like Seafried and whatnot have shown that especially if you pair something like being in a state of ketosis or a fasted state with an oxidative therapy, you make right. that work much better and protect the healthy cells simultaneously. So we have really cool ways to, to bring these tools together and make standard of care work better, mm. protecting the healthy cells. Um, yeah, and so Safery calls that the press pulse strategy, right? Okay. And so can you explain that? You kind of yeah. mentioned it, but let's go into a little more detail on that. The way we currently treat in standard of care oncology is known as the maximum tolerated dose. Right. And there's that, I mean, you, I'll just give you the visual, just think of napalming the field, right? It's like, we're going to hit it with everything we can. We're going to try to eradicate every last cell and then hope that something good sprouts back from that scorched earth after we're all done. That's Western medicine in a nutshell. The coolest thing though, is this emerging field in standard of care is known as the adaptive theory approach. And the adaptive theory is you just cytotoxically reduce, you just push back just enough to get the sort of get the, get the patient out of danger, you know, free up any real estate that was getting pressed on by tumors and whatnot. Like you want to push it back no more than 80% 
Because when you overshoot that place, you wake up the stem cells. And now you have a totally different animal that's way more aggressive, way less responsive to whatever therapy the patient has been on and likely is what will end up taking their lives. So having that context is important because what the press pulse is doing is basically an, ad- an adaptive theory of a metabolic yeah. approach paired with standard of care that says, we're going to push really, really hard. We're going to have you a deep state ketosis while you go to your HBOT or your IVC or your chemo or your hyperthermia or your targeted therapy. We're going to push them all together. And then we're going to let that therapy go and just kind of keep you more in a, in a normal diet state or in a... Um, low, still low carb, maybe not therapeutic state of ketosis. Maybe your GKI doesn't have to be one. Maybe you just need to be around 0.5 of your ketones. And then you push it again in those moments. That's one strategy. There's a few others in the midst of this, but ultimately that's what we're doing is we're like, we're just kind of putting all of our eggs we're pushing really hard in this one place and then backing off Hmm. and then kind of maintaining with a, a, a lower level of just light pressure in the interim, that is sort of this, you know, what I don't even know if Dr. Arce, I've never had this conversation. I need to the next time, but what I perceive that he's doing and creating is actually representing to us the model of the emerging field of adaptive theory. I think that's exactly what we're looking at here. And so there's this way that you can both be, um, you know, hitting it hard and then letting everything recover, hitting it hard, letting things recover. When we do that, we turn cancer from a death sentence into a lifelong maintenance, right? Mm. Like any other chronic illness. And people get the added accidental side effect benefit of going completely into remission and staying there, right? That is, should not be our goal. That should not be our goal. And that's still the goal. So when the trauma, talk about stress and inflammation, the scanxiety of patients who are so attached to what that scan is going to show is driving inflammation, which is driving recurrence, which is driving progression. Sure. Yep. Right. We have to retrain our patients' brains to be like, this is information. That's all the labs are. It's all the tumor markers are. That's all the scan is. Yeah. I'm still addressing all those drops in the bucket. I am still working on changing out, like uh, finding the source, the root of this. And I'm trying to find who I am and reconnect myself, my cells, my spirit, my body, whatever was out of balance. Yeah, earlier you used the term cancering, which is an interesting term. I'd like to come back to that. But first, so the press pulse, so basically you're metabolically stressing it because cancer cells have, most of the time they've lost the metabolic flexibility. So they're really, they have a lot of insulin receptors and they're primarily sugar burners or obligate anaerobes. So they need to burn glucose for fuel and they produce a whole bunch of lactic acid and they kind of create this whole environment. Um, and they can't use fat or ketones very effectively for energy, most of the cancer types. And so because of that, so when we get the blood sugar down, get insulin down, and now the body, the other cells, our our normal cells are utilizing fat and ketones for energy. Now the cancer cells are really starving. So now we hit it with an oxidative therapy, which in the conventional model would be chemotherapy or radiation. And you need a lower dosage and there's less side effects from what I understand. And then in the natural world, you use things like hyperbaric oxygen, which oxygen is therapeutic for normal cells, but but it's damaging to cancer cells because they're anaerobes. They don't use oxygen. And then you've got things like IV vitamin C. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? We now, we have the ability, basically, when we come in creating that metabolic flexibility, 
we add another secret weapon to our, our toolbox that makes those cancer cells way more vulnerable to whatever therapies we put on board. And we, what I want people to know is a lot of people go, oh, she's the ketosis lady, the ketogenic diet lady. I'm not, I'm the metabolic flexibility lady. And there are multiple ways to achieve that state that still induces ketosis. So fasting induces ketosis, um, exogenous ketones, right? The actual ketogenic diet, Mm -hmm. even low carb eating or simple uh, caloric restriction. Yeah. because this is a natural part of us. Like I said, we are dual hybrid and you know, we are full, we are hybrids. We are meant to be able to go in and out of this. So if you move into one area too much, too long, you click into another. That's this cool built-in system. So it drives me nuts. People are out there like, oh, ketones are really bad and they can cause cancer. And then they like are celebrating the impact of fasting on cancer. I'm like, right. Where's the disconnect here? Because it's yeah. this strategy. And that when we, when people start to go, well, great. When cancers get really in, in my world, I don't see that shift into the other fuel burning areas as much, if at all clinically, because I believe I'm dealing with supporting the whole, the whole terrain simultaneously. So I'm turning off other fuel sources. I'm turning off other mechanisms that drive like inflammation and hormone imbalance and stress response and mental emotion. I'm dealing with all of those things simultaneously that i find that just doing the type of dietary interventions I'm doing, just even low carb or intermittent fasting or, or a therapeutic ketogenic diet work, You're just plain right. and simple, right? And yeah. so when I hear the stories and I read the research and I see this, the chat rooms out there about people like, oh, it's learning, even Dr. Sieber, like contributing, it's like, oh, it's willing glutamine. What I also, because I do employ so much intermittent fasting with people, I, don't, I think it's in that moment we're, all, we're doing our own press full spend because guess what? If yeah. you glutamine out of the picture, or methionine out of the picture, you will die. Right. Great. It works great. It's like chemotherapy. Let's <laughs> yield and then see what's left. So when we start to put these drugs out on the market, we're going to see the same type of side effects we're seeing with the other drugs. Yeah. Because your healthy cells, they are predominantly fueled by glutamine. Right. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot both kill the cancer and protect the healthy cells when you start to get myopic with your approach. That's why I love eating this way and bringing in intermittent fasting because it gives you a break from the methionine concerns and from the methionine yeah. uh, concerns. It is, again, the free approach with no side effects to bring this in together if there's any of those concerns. Now, if I, if I, if, if I saw someone, because I check labs every month, if I saw that whatever strategy we were doing, whatever strategy, whatever supplements, herbs, diet, standard of care, other more assertive integrative care things. If I saw they weren't working, I go back and investigate. I go back and what's working, what's not working and why, and what do we need to change to? So I'm catching it in real time. I don't just put somebody on something, say, see you later. Good, good luck with that. You know, like that's not what happens. Right. Here. right. We are completely, uh, it, we are watching it like a hawk all the way through. So again, my outcomes look very different than what the be- the bench might be seeing because yeah. I'm, entire organism and I'm watching them very closely and we're adjusting the course as needed to the individual that needs different things at different times, you know? So, so that's where I I get worried when I see these camps out there infighting about diets and infighting about certain medications and stuff like we're missing the point. We are missing the point, which is the person and the terrain that they have within them and around them. 
And we have to keep our eye on that. We have to keep pulling back to that. It's cool, like I said, to get in there and kind of precisely deal with some of the myopic targets and trends in there, but that will not will not save your patient's life at the end of the day. I've seen miraculous right. things of people traveling all over the world who were end of life, sent home to hospice by their standard of care, have been through every treatment you can imagine, have had everything thrown at them. They end up in an alternative clinic elsewhere and they do in fact go into remission, but they come out of it, great. Their scans are clear, everything looks great, but their terrain is so messed up because literally mm. someone threw every single thing at them at once and it just overwhelmed the system. So it pushed them into remission on the scan but it put them into progression of dying at the terrain. Yeah, and that's the difference between having a diagnosable cancer and going through a process of cancering. Yes. We'll kind of conclude on that. Can you explain that? Sure. You know, cancer, we talked about in the very beginning. It's like it's like a paragraph, not a word. Yeah. I also personally think of cancer more as, we talked about, I see it as a messenger, an opportunity. But I also, when I'm looking at someone dealing with a cancer diagnosis that's actively happening, I think of it as a bird, okay? Right. And in that cancer ring is a couple of things. So we've talked about the trifecta, those labs. If I have a patient whose scan is clear as a whistle, nothing showing up, no evidence of disease, Ned, and their tumor markers are perfect, they're well within normal limits, and everyone's celebrating and they're ringing the bell and they're like, great, I can get back on with my life, right? When I look at their trifecta, that's what tells me what's really going on. Right. So. Said rate, um, LDH and CRP are all elevated. I know it's a matter of days, weeks, or months that they're exploding with a recurrence or progression of their cancer. So I, I don't want them to get complacent. This is actually where we start the work. And I'm actually way more scared for those patients than I am for the patients who have perfect trifectas, all well within those normal limits, that have scans like looking like everything's lit up like a Christmas tree, and their tumor markers are in the hundreds or the thousands, I am way less afraid of those patients. I am yeah. way less afraid of those patients. And that's a really like weird thing for patients to hear, <laughs> your listeners to hear, because what I know then is if I'm seeing that trifecta in place, I know that the patient's still in the driver's seat, not the cancer. And I know we have something to do. We, have, we can do something about that. When all of them, like when everything's bad, the scans and the markers and the trifecta are bad, those are a little bit more challenging. So I don't want patients to wait to come see somebody like me or one of my trained doctors at that point. And guess what? That's probably the lion's share of who comes to see us. That's the nature of the beast today, but we're working on yeah. trying to change that. But that's where I want people to start to think about. So my whole goal now is to um, teach a methodology and a critical path forward for physicians to guide their patients through the cancer wilderness. And most of that involves changing the narrative and changing our understanding about health and disease changing our understanding about tumor versus terrain and changing our understanding about maximum tolerated dose versus adaptive theory. Pretty simple. And I help these doctors know exactly what to test for, what to look for, how to respond, and then how to change course. And in the process of doing so, they're educating their patients. So now their patients are literally tracking themselves even as much as the doctors are and understanding they're like, yep, Christmas, I, I always saw this for years, like everyone's lab in January, we're a hot mess, right? It's like, everyone's like, okay, I dealt with all my emotional wounds of going home. Yeah. I was on an airplane germ thing. You know, my vitamin D levels are in the toilet. I ate sugar from Thanksgiving to, you know, New Year's. <laughs> and then they're just like, and there it is. They watch the bucket fall apart in a matter of days or weeks. So it's really great when you educate and empower the patient to know what they're looking for as much as the doctor, because then it's a conversation. We're all at the table together. That's yeah. where you get the outcomes. 
So good. This has been such a great interview. I mean, I could go on for hours with you. I mean, it, as you guys can see, Dr. Nasha is a brilliant mind, one of the leading minds when it comes to natural cancer therapies, natural cancer, just a natural cancer approach in general. So I highly recommend guys check out her book, Metabolic Approach to Cancer. Phenomenal book where you get a lot more information. You can also check her out at drnasha.com. And for those that are practitioners, if you want to get training, special training in her in her methods, she actually has a mastermind program that you can check out as well. So, um, Dr. Nasha, thanks so much for all your time. This has been such an enlightening and uh, an inspiring interview. So, I really appreciate everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. All the best. Absolutely. So go ahead and check out Dr. Nasha and guys, we'll see you on a future interview in the Chronic Inflammation Summit. Now is the time to go out and take action. We'll see you soon. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.